song was written by Horatio Spafford. Do you know the story? He sent his four girls to Europe ahead of him on a boat. The boat sank in the middle of the Atlantic. His wife and him followed on the next boat over. He asked the captain to stop the boat where his children drowned to death. And he wrote that song. Can you say that this morning? Is it well with your soul no matter what God chooses to do? Hmm. A great hymn. One of my favorites. Sing that at my funeral. <laughs> Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. We'll read the scriptures and then we'll be seated here. We are closing out a, a short series on stewardship, what we do with the things God gives us, and then we're going to be starting the book of Philippians, and longing to get going in that as well, but this is a, a magnificent passage of scripture. Listen as I read. Verse 6 says this, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. And it is written, he scatters abroad and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also pray on your behalf, yearn for you because you, excuse me, because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And the final verse here, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we read this text and get prepared to take it apart and grow from it, Lord, the overwhelming thought is how gracious you are to us, Lord. We were lost in our sins hell-bound to a Christless eternity. And you rescued us, Lord. You took us and snatched us away from the grave, Lord. So it is with great hearts full of worship and gratitude, Lord, is the theme of giving. Our souls are full of joy, it is well with our hearts, with our souls, Lord, because we know we have a God who always does what's right. 
So Lord, we respond to that by singing, being in your word, by giving to you, Lord. And so Father, we wanna be stewarded by your word today, not pushed from compulsion, but stirred from the word of God. So we beg for your spirit to take the word of God and pierce our hearts. Help us, Lord. We want to be good stewards of the things you've given to us, Lord. And we want to have stronger faith in you that you will meet our needs. So Lord, encourage us today in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What a text this is. It's in a tremendous setting. The setting is written to a church that has been well known and well documented for their selfishness. They were a bit of a selfish church. They got tied up into worldly things. They were very concerned what people thought about them. They chased the latest spiritual crazes. And yet, they did believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a church. It is a church established by Paul, and it had believers in it, but they were, they were just wayward in how they conducted themselves in many, many ways. The setting here is that Paul is writing to them to get a gift ready for the suffering saints that are in Jerusalem. That's what's going on here. Remember, persecution started at the hub of Jerusalem, and then it spread out. And that's why many of the churches got planted, because Persecution drove them out. God used persecution to start the church plants going from different places. But the most difficult place to be a Christian during the first century was Jerusalem. It was there they crucified Christ. It was there they killed Stephen and many others that they were trying to drive and suppress this way that was starting the followers of Jesus Christ. And so the Jerusalem church was suffering. They had a lot of poor in it. They were um, trying to gather funds to send back to these people. And Paul has to write very strongly to try to get this very wealthy church, Corinth, to get engaged, to get in the game in a sense. And what he does is he uses doctrine to do it. He doesn't come along and scare them into giving, twist their arm, And he doesn't come along and try to use a prosperity gospel to do it. He uses doctrine and truth. And and, and when you think about that today, God has such a very different financial plan for Christians than the world does and, 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 and the Christianity that plays around the prosperity gospel does. The prosperity gospel is constantly trying to get you to gain wealth through some kind of spiritual gimmicks and hoops that you jump through and experiences that you have. And, and, and they try to build you up, Paul calls it tickling your ears, making you believe that, that God is so desperate for you. He needs you. And if you come along and do this, we, you will get lots of riches. You've all seen the TV preachers and the advertisements that go You can get a prayer shawl from the wool of Jerusalem. And if you give us so much money, we'll send this shawl to you or this mat. And if you kneel on this, God will give you money. It's so unbiblical. (laughs) It's so far from the truth that the Bible speaks about giving. 
The prosperity gospel appeals to your self-centeredness, to your greed. But God's plan is completely opposite. God leads believers towards generous giving so you have great joy. And that's what we want you to understand as we preach through this series. And we've had lots of different men up here. And I'm just wrapping it up together with these guys. Ted led us off with the remembrance of the fragrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you, do you smell like him? And do you follow him? And, and if you do, this is what that motivates you and drives you to give. And our brother Robert came up behind and said, where your treasure is, there is your heart. Very, very great sermon and made you examine, where is my treasure? What, what do I hold no, so dearly? Can I sing a song like that and, and forget about my treasures? And then Nilo was here last week from the Philippines. And he pro- preached a sermon out of Mark 11 and said, God has need of it. He has need of it. Will you give? Will you give? And, and Nilo comes from a, an amazing perspective, sitting down on the island of Mindanao. It was interesting. He asked Gene and I and, and Pastor Phil Foley and his wife Becky to go next year and do the pastor's conference. And then this week, they, the Abu Sayyaf, which is the Al-Qaeda branch there that's in Mindanao, grabbed a couple of white people and have them captive or threatening to do the same thing that uh, they've been doing in the Middle East to them. And you go, okay, Nilo. Just in our faith. But you think about where they live and what they do. They preach the gospel. They plant churches right in the war zones because they believe the Lord Jesus to be true. So today I want to follow up that's just right here out of this text, what Paul was trying to do with Corinth to encourage them to see what God does with those who give and how he strengthens and how he becomes the indescribable gift. Well, I got a couple of thoughts here. I'm sure I'm only gonna get through half of them today and we'll finish up next week. But first of all, the joy and sorrow of sowing and reaping. The joy and sorrow of sowing and reaping. Look at verse six with me just once more here. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Well, the point's pretty clear. You don't have to be um, a Greek student to understand how to interpret that. The more one gives, the more God seems here to give back to them. Now, the question is, and we'll answer it as we go through, what that is he gives back. But, but the point's clear here. What he gives, when someone gives, he gives back. If you sow sparingly, the Bible says here, very clear, you reap sparingly. But the one, the one who's more into the ground, there's the farming terminologies here, that one, that one who trusts the Lord, he will reap bountifully. And you say, well, where did he get this? Is this something just Paul came up with? Well, it's actually taught through the Bible quite a bit. I want to start in Proverbs. Look at Proverbs with me. Go to Proverbs chapter three. We'll start there. Just stick something in that page right there and we'll come back to 2 Corinthians 9. But Proverbs chapter 3, and we'll work our way through Proverbs and then another uh, minor prophet and then into the words of Jesus. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 
9 and 10. So I want you to see that this is not something new. Uh, Paul certainly knew his Old Testament text, the, and he was taking this right out of the scriptures as he says this to us. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. We're going to see in a minute. We're going to go deeper into the Old Testament into the law, and we're going to actually see this. This is something that was taught from the beginning. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. It's a promise. Honor the Lord. Give him honor. Give him honor with what he gives you. And then particularly notice the first of all your produce. Look with me at chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. There is one who scatters and yet him yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet the results leave him only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. See where Paul's getting this terminology from? Go a little farther. Go to Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs 19, verse 17. The one who is gracious to the poor, man lends to the Lord. The one who is gracious to a poor, man lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his good deeds. So there's seeing suffering and meeting needs. Look at uh, Proverbs chapter 28. I'm just picking out, there's many in Proverbs. I just read through the book of Proverbs. I was marking some things I was going through. Proverbs 28, 27. He who gives to the poor will never want. But he who shuts his eyes will have many curses. Wow, what a verse. And then look a little farther towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Malachi, the last, the last of the minor prophets before the intertestinal break. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. We're actually going to come back to verses 8 and 9, so don't look at those yet. Just look at verse 10. I'll bring you to the whole context here in a minute. God speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Malachi says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And then there's this clause here, so that there may be food in my house and, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And then look just a little farther to Luke. Let's move to Jesus' words. Let's just pick up one of his. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Right in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says this. Verse 38, chapter 6. Give and it will be given to you. They will be poured into your lap, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. I'll turn back to our text in verse 6. It says here, so Paul, taking these Old Testament thoughts and speaking into a New Testament, we're going to understand it under a new covenant here in a moment, is he begins to say, look, if you sow sparingly, that's how you're going to reap. If you sow bountifully, you will reap as well. These are strong farming terms, and I understand this. We, we had a farm 
a cattle ranch up in Modoc County for many years, and we grew our own hay each year. And um, we were mostly dependent upon the Lord to send rain. And, and that's, that's a little bit of a challenge in years like we've had. And the question comes down is, how much seed am I going to purchase? Because the seed's expensive to go in the ground in order to buy the hay that'll grow. Do I sow very heavily trusting that God's going to send the rain in order to have a heavy harvest and lots of bales of hay that we'll put up for the winter be able to feed the cattle through the snow? Or do I cut back thinking that maybe there won't be enough rain? Every year that was a dilemma. Sometimes we would look at our checking account and say, hmm, (laughs) can we afford to put that much seed into the ground this year? Is the Lord going to send the rain? I remember many times the boys were very little, Gina and I, and the boys would go out stand in our hayfield, pray for rain, hold hands and say, Lord, please send rain. Please send rain. So often he did, and and there's a a very clear understanding here. You don't know how it's going to happen. You really don't. But the Lord gives you a promise. Look, if you sow this way, this is what you're going to get. He's trying to encourage this church. He's trying to motivate them to give to the struggling saints in Jerusalem. It's interesting, he's coming and he's already picked up gifts from Macedonia. Now the interesting thing about that, he's passed through towns like Philippi, which we're gonna preach in Philippians here starting soon. It was not a wealthy church. In fact, they were kind of miners and farmers in that area. They were not wealthy people. And yet their gifts out exceeded anything Corinth had ever given. And so he's trying to say, look, others have given, others much poorer than you have given. Would you join with us and trust the Lord? Another thing that's interesting is the word bountiful there in verse six. It is the Greek word we get for blessings. And you could almost read it this way. So sparingly, you reap sparingly. So bountifully with blessings and joy in your heart, blissful joy is the idea of the word, you reap with blissful joy. And that leads us right to the next verse, the joyful privilege of giving and the love of God. Look at the next verse, verse seven. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I want you to think about just the last phrase for a minute. We'll come back to some of the other things in that verse. God loves a cheerful giver. Boy, I thought long and hard about that phrase this week. Sometimes I think our mind gets stuck on the giving part. But I want to turn your mind to what God loves. There's a verb here that's very strong it becomes the object of God's love. The cheerful giver is the object of God's love. Do you see that in the verse? Look at it. For God loves a cheerful giver. There is now an object, a direction towards the love of God. It is this cheerful giver that God loves. Now you say, well, doesn't he love everybody? Well, the Bible says God to love the world. He has a love for his creation. The Bible also says that he has a unique, special love for his children, those who are born again, those who believe and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a very, very special love that he has for us, a redeeming love. But this goes a step farther. He's talking to the church. He's talking to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he's saying that God has a special object of love towards one who gives cheerfully. You think about this. Uh, Lord, we could gather every bit of human praise on the world, right? Through Twitter and Facebook and, and whatever shows are on. Get all the praise. You could gather every bit of wealth known to man. You could get all the accolations and rewards and, and, and awards to have. And you'll still never be the object of God's love. I, I, for all the years I've taught through this, I did not see the depth of that words there. So you get lost in the giver part. But God loves, directs his attention, directs his unique, agape, unconditional, never wavering, solid, you can bet your life on it, love towards that one who says, I give to you, Lord, because you are worthy. I cheerfully take of mine that you gave to me and I give it back to you. Wow. Maybe that answers when sometimes people come in and they say, you know, Pastor, I just don't feel like God loves me like he loves other people. Certainly, there's probably other reasons there as you work through those things, but maybe one of the questions we need to ask is, are you a cheerful giver? The word here, cheerful giving, means it comes from the heart. And that's what the verse says here, that there's a purpose given, right? That's a, the heart, that's the purpose to give for the glory of the Lord. Notice the word purpose in there. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. The, the word purpose is the word uh, predetermined. That's the idea of it. You predetermined to give. Now, um, as I thought about this, there's spontaneous given, Right? That happened this week. We had a great need within the church, a homeless couple that we've been ministering to, trying to disciple. They came into a, a great need. We put a prayer request out there, and we got twice what we needed. Folks rolled in, food, clothing, all this stuff came in. It was amazing. We actually stored some of it away for the next emergency that may come up. Now, God loves that. But here the verse says that God loves when we purpose to do something. He, we purpose to do something. Let me, let me illustrate this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 16. No, oh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Just go over to your left a little bit. Giving was a hard thing for the Corinth church, and you see it throughout the letters. And it's just because they're selfish. They're just were a selfish church. They fought over who had gifts and who could speak first and who did this and do that. They, they didn't wait for the poor. They would eat all the food before the poor got there. There was just a struggle with selfishness. So Paul, several places, has to tell them how to give. But he loves for us, God likes for us, loves for us to purpose in our heart to give. Look at chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you, isn't that an amazing phrase right there? One, it secures why we worship on Sunday. Because of the resurrection, Jesus was raised on Sunday, and the church immediately worshiped on Sunday, not the Sabbath anymore. It's also a time where we come together, and on that day, we purpose each one of us to set aside. Notice this, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save. Look at this, as he may Prosper, so that no collection 
be made when I come. Start planning on giving so when I come, I can collect this and then I can go and disperse it to the needs that are there. Purpose in your heart to do this. Isn't that interesting? We still do that, don't we? I hope you're doing this. I hope as we've been going through this series that you're learning to say, Lord, I want to give you my first fruits. And, and a lot of you do that electronically, which on the back of the cards there, we've, we've shown you how to do that. We have that in the back as well. You push the button and electronically, the first thing that goes is my gift to the Lord. Some of you give it here when it comes by you. We're soon moving to the boxes here uh, very quickly in the back. Um, but you purpose in your heart to do that. I love on Tuesday mornings when Jessica's counting deposit and getting all that done and her and Michael are getting all that figures done and stuff. And I'm in my office usually trying to catch up and get going with things. And I hear all the little change hit the table. You know what that is? That's your kids giving. Somebody's teaching their children to give their first fruits to the Lord. And there may be a couple of pennies. And just because I can hear her just slide and count the little pennies in the quarters. See, purpose. This brings God glory. Purpose in your heart to give to the Lord. Now you go, well, what happened? What happened with the nation and, and, and this under compulsion here? He says, not under compulsion. That's a problem, right? Not grudgingly or under compulsion, the verse says. Well, grudgingly means not with sorrow or grief and pain, like, oh man, it's the first of the month I've got to give to the Lord. <laughs> or, 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 you know, you want something else and, and that, boy, you know, I know I should give more, but I want these things, and, and, but you do it out of, well, that's what we're supposed to do. And so it's grudgingly or it's under compulsion. What happened? What happened to, to that? How did it get there? How did it get there? And, and how did people start giving in the first place? Well, I want to take you to a little tour through the Old Testament to help you start to understand what happened. Turn with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. And then we'll work our way all the way back to this passage. And we'll say a few comments, and I think that's probably as far as we're going to get, and then we'll finish this next week. Because by the time Jesus is on the earth, and we'll, we'll end with some verses there, there is way deep legalism within the Jewish society. It is not... It is not giving cheerfully. It's given because we're watching over what you give. And look at us. Look what we give. It was a messed up offering. And Jesus knew it. And Paul knows it. And he has seen the trends. And I think we can learn from the Old Testament what the Bible teaches here. So a lot of you heard the term give 10%. So where does that come from? Well, it starts actually here. Genesis chapter 14 is the first time we see anything uh, written in that. And then I'll remind you, we see no, the word tithe is not even used in the New Testament, nor is any percentage. But we're going to see what happens here as we take a little jaunt through the scriptures here. Genesis 14, let me lay a little background here. It's a fascinating. Um, I don't believe Abraham is what we would call saved at this time or, or justified from his sins. That happens in, in chapter 15, verse 6. But God has called him, and he's following this God of the heavens, and he is now growing in his wealth. In fact, chapter 13, he has his nephew Lot because his father had died. He took Lot on. And both of their families are growing so much that the land can't hold their herds and their herdsmen are fighting. And so Abram, Abram at this time says, Lot, you pick and I'll go the opposite way. Oh, Lot, you know what old Lot did? He looked and said, hmm, 
dry and barren, hmm, very wealthy over here. Guess where he went? Well, he went to the wealth. He saw Sodom and Gomorrah. He saw the wealth. He saw the land. He knew he could make great money there. So Lot went that way and Abram went the other way. Well, when you find lots of wealth, you find lots of problems and a war broke out. And a bunch of kings came and took over the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and and several other places. They took all those people captive, including Lot and his family. And here comes Abraham. Abram at the time. He gathers a bunch of his men, their shepherds and slaves and servants that he has, and they go fight these kings. And they beat them. They beat these kings who were warriors, and God gave Abram favor. And something amazing happens in this text. He comes back, and these kings come out to greet him, to thank him. And there's a particular king in verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Everybody know that name, Melchizedek? Is your mind moving? Hebrews pictures Melchizedek as a picture of Christ. He has no family heritage, earthly heritage. There's no line that he comes from. He's the king of Salem, which is eventually Jerusalem. Salem becomes Jerusalem. So he's connected to that. And Abraham, here's what he does. Look at verse 20. After he's gone and not only got everybody back, he took all the other king's stuff that robbed those people. And he says, blessed be the God most high. That's what Abraham believes. There's a God most high who has delivered your enemies into my hands. And then he, Abraham, gave a tenth of all he had. Gave a tenth of all he had to this king of Salem. He gave it to him, the priest. And this, this Melchizedek was a priest at this time and a king, which resembles the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave him a tenth. It's the first time we ever see this in here. Now, there's no law written. You don't even have a nation yet. You've got Abraham with a wife he can't even pregnant yet. They're just walking around the desert. And, he, and God keeps saying, I'm going to make you this great nation. And he says, not yet. So this is the first time we see that. Look at over with, um, go a little farther. Uh, Abraham does have children. We get to Jacob, uh, Genesis chapter 28. You remember this? End of the chapter, Jacob is traveling back and forth. Uh, God is reminding Jacob the same truths he reminded Abraham. I'm gonna make a great nation out of you. He falls asleep. He sees the dream of angels descending and the Son of Man at the head of the stairway. And he wakes up from this and we find what he has to say in verse 22, right at the end of the the chapter. This stone which I set up as a pillar will be God's house. All spotted near where Jerusalem would soon be. And of that, all, all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Wow, what language. All that you give me, God, I will give a tenth back to you. So this is the terminology, all pre-law, there's no written down law here. Soon that comes, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 27. I'll I'll skip many passages on on giving and and move to some unique passages that, that maybe will help us a little bit. Not only were they to give, now the law is written and they were to give to this to the priesthood and to the running of the country, um, this 10% tithe, it was called. They were also to give percentages, 10% of all that they had. Now notice verse 30 of Leviticus chapter 27. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed, 
of the land or of the fruit of the tree is the Lord's, it is holy to the Lord. So they were not only to give a tithe of their finances, but now God instructs them to give their seed, their fruit, the things they grow to the Lord. Verse 31, if therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he got behind, it shall be added one-fifth. Verse 32, for every tenth part of the herd or the flock. Now he's going into what they raised. Remember, everybody was in agriculture at this time. Whatever passes through the rod, that's an interesting term, you handle counting, that was a way of counting, whatever passes through the rod, the tenth shall be holy to the Lord. So God had set up this, now what he had taught to Abraham through his heart and through Jacob, now there was a law down to give. Now understand that the whole nation was run off this. The priests were not given um, an inheritance. November, uh, no, uh, Numbers 18, verse 20 says, Levites are to have no inheritance. So as Caleb and Joshua and all the, the leaders of the, uh, the nation were dividing up of the ground that they conquered, no land was ever given to Levites. They were not to own any land. They were to receive everything from the gifts to the Lord. A percentage would give. And then the Levites were instructed, what you get from the people given, a tenth of your receiving from them goes back to the Lord. Now, this was not to be done grudgingly. I want to show you another passage. We're just kind of working our way through the law of the first five books. Look at Deuteronomy with me. Deuteronomy chapter 12. It was to be done joyfully. God wanted joy in this giving. Now, we're not setting up a New Testament principle here. Let me be clear. You're probably going, oh, Scott's going to really nail us to get us up to 10%. In fact, let me go a little farther. Um, They gave about, if you do all the homework, and I remember working through this in seminary one time, it's about 35% of their income they gave as to the nation of Israel, to God. About 35%. So, Percentage is out the door. You start to think of what America churches give now. We give 1.3% of our income. So there's a little bit of difference of what God was asking here. Now, but it was to them joyfully. I want to get this point across. Look at chapter 12, verse 6 and 7. There you shall bring your burnt offering. Where the, He's talking about, I'm going to land this nation wherever I put this temple, wherever I move you around, and this temple goes down with, its, with its, um, all its skins, and we have all these things set up for this temple. There I want you to do these things. That's the idea here. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, verse 6, your, your sacrifices, your tithes. Notice what's going on here. So there's offering. You have to bring something of your herd for sin that you've committed, right? That's going to hold off the wrath of God till Jesus comes. Your burnt offerings as worship to God. Your tithes to help run the nation. Your contri- contribution of your hand. Your votive offerings. Your free will offerings. And the firstborn of your herds of your flock. Notice that. That's quite a list. You're going, whoa. I mean, there's what the, how many things? Burn offering, sacrifice, tithe, contributions of your hand, votive offering, free will offering, and the firstborn of your flock. I ran out of fingers on my hand. This is what they were to bring. But notice this, verse seven. There also you and your house shall eat before the Lord. So not only did you bring your firstborn calf to the Lord and you sacrificed it, but the legs were given back to you and you were to eat those before the Lord. It shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all the undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. 
Be a part of this giving. Rejoice with me when they do it. They were commanded to do this. Look at verse 17 and 19. 17 through 19. You are not allowed to eat within your gates the tithe of your grain or your new wine or oil. Here's more things they gave, grain and new wine and oil. Or the firstborn of your herd or flocks or any of your votive offerings which you which you vowed, right? So a votive, a votive offering was, Lord, I, I vow to give you this. It was an offering of worship, but you vowed to do it. So it was up and above your regular tithes and offerings that you would give, or your free, off, free will offering, or your contributions of your hand. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God will choose, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, and you shall rejoice before the Lord, for your God is, is in all your undertakings. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. See, he was worshipful. God meant it to be worshipful. Look at chapter 14. Verse 22, you shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow. So if you've got a lemon tree and you pick 100 lemon trees, lemons off that tree, you would give 10, which comes from the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. Tithe of your grain, your new wines, your oils, your first, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks so that you may learn to fear, worship the Lord your God. See, it's a part of worship. That word fear is awe, reverence before God. He used this to bring reverence to the Lord. You show me someone who ties with joy, I'll show you someone who really has reverence for God. Verse 24, if the distance is too great, look at how kind God is. Man, I gotta get fruit and grain and lambs and cattle all the way there. He says, if the distance is too great for you to be able to bring these ties all the way to the Lord where the temple was, since the place from the Lord chose to set his name is too far from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand. Hold it here with a purpose and go to the place which the Lord God chooses and you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen, for sheep, for wine, for strong drink, for whatever your heart desires and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. See, there's a pattern of worship that was in the Old Testament of their giving and you go, wow, it was a lot. I mean, think of young families, Right? And you don't have stuff, maybe all of this. But the Lord only asked of what he gave you. What have I given you? Bring me back the portion. Well, what happened? Why did the nation end in such disarray? Well, from here, as we follow along the story, you remember that they begin to worship the gods of the nations that they took over. They begin to fall down before the poles of Astroth. They begin to burn their babies to Baal and worship the Canaanite gods and Moloch. And once they stopped worshiping God, though they would go to temple sometimes, their worship fell, their joy went away, giving became a burden. And when giving becomes a burden to you, what happens to your giving? It stops. In fact, it stops so greatly that God sent the nation of Assyria to come conquer the northern tribes. He took them away in 725 BC. 
Away they went to Assyria. Babylon, great Nebuchadnezzar, took Assyria later on, uh, uh, over a century later, and they came and took the northern tribes in 605 to 597, and they put them in captivity for 70 years. Daniel prayed at the end of the 70 years that they would be released to go back and build the temple and come back. But the people had been so used to not worshiping God and giving as Nehemiah deals with the people. Nehemiah chapter 13, I think around verse 10, he says, you have, you have forgotten how to give to the Lord. Look, your priests are in the field sowing their own seed because there's nothing given to the Lord. And they began to deteriorate, and there there was a rally back. They began to build a temple, but soon the nation fell again. Idolatry came in. And let me show you Malachi. We were there early, but I want to see, we'll show you the context. As they go to Malachi chapter 3. And as you're turning there, let me tell you why I'm doing this. Um, I've preached on this other places, and the other churches that we planted. And I found that often, when I preach on it, a lot of people say, you know, I just never knew this. I just never knew what the Lord wanted us to give. And so I think sometimes it's just a good refresher to find out what was going on with giving within the Bible. So I think it's a good history lesson to help us understand. Here the nation is in the middle of rebellion. This is before they go to captivity. Malachi is sent to the nation to bring them to repentance. Notice in verse eight, Malachi says this, will a man rob God? Yet, You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. See, their, their hearts went out to someone else, and that's when he says this great verse in verse 10. He says, bring the whole offering back into the house so that in my house there's food stored up, Test me, see what I'll do. I'll open the windows of heaven for you and I'll pour out the blessings with overflow. But you're robbing me. Everything you have comes from God. We say that here, don't we? Do you not believe that? Everything comes from God. And they're going, we're robbing you. How are we robbing God? You don't give me your tithes and offerings. You withhold them. In fact, I would surmise from the book here that they were giving their tithes and offering to godless things, like Moloch, a brazen altar that has no eyes, no ears. Well, it has eyes and ears, but they can't hear, they can't see, and they would burn their newborn babies in them and give offering to them. And God says, look, you're robbing me. And what happened? What happened to this nation? Well, if you follow the history of Israel, They do go to captivity. They rally for a little while under Nehemiah and Ezra. And they start to build a temple again and they worship the Lord for a little while. But idolatry comes back in. Mede-Persians allowed them to come back. Cyrus and other kings allowed them to come back. But soon they fell into idolatry again and God sent the Greeks to crush them again. And in between the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament, what we call the intertestinal period, the Greeks came and they trounced the nation of Israel. There, Antichrist burnt a pig on the altar of God, mocked their God openly. And God allowed it to happen. There were some religious people at that time said, this is because we have put idols before God and we have not given to him. This is where the Pharisees came from. 
that group in between the intertestamental periods arose and said, we need to return to the God of Israel. And they led the nation back to the God of Israel. But the problem is, they didn't lead him back to worship him in truth and honor for who he was. They did it because they didn't want that to happen to them again. So what happens when you do something for the wrong reason? Legalism. And up now we have the Pharisees and we come to them in the New Testament. Look with me at Luke 11. We're working our way back to our text. Luke 11, verse 42. This is just between the entrance of Jesus into, um, into uh, uh, Jerusalem and his death. It's recorded also in Matthew 23, but I'll use this text because it's closer. Verse 42, he gives them what they call the eight woes. He is not happy with what the religious leaders have done to his people. They suppressed them so greatly. They hid God from them and made them the ones that they looked at. And all through this eight woes that he gives are very, very daunting. But look with me at verse 42 particularly when it comes to this legalistic giving. Verse 42, but woe to you Pharisees. This is Jesus speaking, the king of creation, the one who owns all things. For you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Now stop right there. They would literally do this. They would take their herbs, weigh them out, 10%. Whew. That's going to you, God. They would strain the gnat to order to hold the law because they believed they were justified by the law. Jesus says, you do all this. You pay mint and rue and every kind of herb. I ask for the fruit that you grow. They always go farther. Oh, look at us. (laughs) Look what we do. And yet, you disregard justice and the love of God. Now that brings us right back to our text that we're in. God loves the children of God. You regard, you disregard the love of God. You're so caught up in what you give. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You could have been given to me with a love for me. But you did not do that. Remember Luke 18, chapter 12 the, the Pharisee's in there and he's in the temple and he's, he's in front of everybody. He's up front and he said, God, I do this. I pray three times a day. I fast twice a week. I give up all my tithes and offerings and I'm not like that guy. And there's that schlub in the back. He's, he's, a, he's a tax collector. He's, he's a treason to them. And he's sitting in the back going like this. God, I am not worthy of anything. His heart is broken before God. And Jesus says that man is justified, but the other man, he's, look what I've done. So the point of taking you through this process is you begin to realize why Paul says God loves a chill forgiver. Go back to our text in 2 Corinthians and we'll stop here in just a moment. Each, now, now think about this verse after what we've just been through this history. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. 
Lord, I want to give first fruits to you. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They said they were going to give something. And then they didn't. Acts chapter 5. Each one should do just as he purposed in his heart. Now look at this term. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. God never wanted them in the Old Testament to give that way. He wanted it done for worship. But the religious leaders took it and made it into something very legalistic. There was no joy left in it. In fact, when you see the widow who comes in and gives her last mite, often people try to use this as a teaching to get people to give more. I think it's not that, I don't think that's why Jesus gave the demonstration. I think he gave the demonstration to show how corrupt the system was. These guys, they got all kinds of money. She's trying to maybe gain, who knows what was going through her head. She's thinking, well, this is what God is pleased if I do these things. The legalism had been so deep, then you have to do this this way and this this way in order to gain eternal life. That's what Nicodemus thought. That's what the rich young ruler thought. So doubtlessly, so she gives her last little bit of money she has and probably goes out and dies. It was It was twisted. So Paul comes to the New Testament church and says, don't do it grudgingly. Don't do it under a false compulsion. If you want God's real special love inside this love that he has for us as believers, I can't help but get around this verse. God loves a cheerful giver. It's interesting, the word cheerful. It's a, I didn't know this. I'm studying along and looking at the Greek text. And it's the word, you know what word we get from the Greek word cheerful here? You probably have a study Bible and everybody's looking at it right now. It's the word hilarious. We get the English word from this Greek word, we get the word hilarious. God loves hilarious giver. We wouldn't print that because I guess people would maybe laugh at it, but that's what the word means. It means he's overcome with joy. He is happy, joyous giver who joyfully gives to the Lord. He, he loves being the object of God's love and he counts giving as a privilege. He sees that. Are you a gospel-driven Hilarious giver. Years ago, we were planting a church in Lake City, California, way up on the Oregon, Nevada border. We were planting a church, and a lot of men I was training, and men were starting to move towards eldership. And the one man who was a, uh, an administrator with me and, and handled the books and just did a wonderful job. Love the Lord Jesus. And I preached something on here. I, I don't remember where I was. And the next day I came, next Sunday I came to church and we had a big box in the back, kind of like we're doing here where boxes where you're going to give here. And on top of it was a card, a big card, heavy, thick card. And it says, God loves a cheerful giver. Are you cheerful today? <laughs> I walked in and cracked up. And I said, that's hilarious. God loves hilarious giving. So, as we just close this out, and we're going to have to come back because I don't want to leave you hanging there. I want to teach the rest of this next week and then we'll start the book of Philippians. 8 through 15 is this amazing verses. 
And you say, and you're, you're maybe going through your mind, maybe you're here and you're going through financial struggles and you're saying, Scott, you don't know what I have. You don't know what's going, through, what, what's going on in my life. And, and I don't. I don't know who gives anything here. I, I just, I stay out of that end of things. But he's going to remind you through this text, I am the God of grace. Try to outgive me. Just try. In fact, the last verse says this, and this is what we'll close with, and then we're going to sing a great song to close with. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. See, you think, we think about our gifts. What are we going to give to the Lord? What are, we, are we going to examine our gifts? And, and that's why we've asked you to take the covenant card out of the back. This is just for you. If, you're, if you haven't been here since we started this series, this is it's right behind the seat back. It's, it's for you to examine what you give. And, and just pray about it. Sit down with your, your spouse. Sit down with somebody. Um, if you're single and you want someone to, to help you with this, we would be more than willing to sit down with you. Um, but just examine. But don't let anything else motive you, motivate you than this verse 15. Thanks be to God for the indescribable gift. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he can't motivate you, nobody else can. Because he's indescribable. And here's, here's the idea. He is your friend. He came and your friend laid down his life for you so you could spend eternity not in the flames of hell, not in perishing in a Christless eternity. He came and laid his life down for you so that you would have eternity awaiting for you. He is truly the indescribable gift. He's indescribable. You and I, we could start over here with Paul and work our way around and everybody could say something different about Christ and we wouldn't exhaust it. Right? He's indescribable. So Paul says give because he's indescribable. Don't give grudgingly or out of compulsion, being pushed into something. Give because he is the great gift. Last thought. This leads into our song. What a friend we have in Jesus. If your friend is in need, would you give it to him? What would you do? What would you do if I came to you and said, I can't pay my bills, or I'm in trouble? I know so many of you. You're, you're so loving. You would, you would do whatever it took to help me, wouldn't you? Think about your friend in Jesus. The Bible says there is a friend that is closer than a brother. What a friend we have in Jesus. I asked Darren to close in this song because I think that's what I want you to be motivated for your giving, not because we're doing a series on stewardship. I have a friend in Jesus and my sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this series on stewardship. It's so good for us, Lord. So good for us to think about where our treasure is. What fragrance are we giving off? Does the Lord have need of things from me? Are we a cheerful giver that God become, we become God's object of his love? Lord, help us to really think about this, to, to ponder over it as families, as individuals. Lord, what do we give to our precious friend in Jesus? So Lord, we sing this last song to you, Lord, because you are our friend and you've done so much for us. Listen to our song, listen to our words as we bless you in Jesus' name.